This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Minds. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is easy. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh, big happy birthday uh, to you. Thank you. For all of our uh, Equity Mates listeners out there, Sunday, the 12th of May. Uh, Bryce turned 28, so uh, so get on social media and uh, give him a big happy birthday. Yes, thanks, Ren. So now that everyone knows, uh, I'll be expecting cards in the mail next year from all of our Equity Mates listeners. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's been a good day. Um, as I was saying to you offline, uh, had a big uh, sort of tennis tournament yesterday with all of our mates, and which was fun, and then obviously today is Mother's Day, so did what we needed to there. So as part of this weekend, we have been putting together the second part of our Berkshire Hathaway Q&A episode. Yes, Q&A. So we're not, we're not going to quite stick to the 20 minutes again, but hopefully people got something out of the first one and hopefully people get uh, something out of this one as well. It will, you know, it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation, a lot of questions asked, so... If you're not a fan of a certain question or you're not interested, skip forward. There's probably nine or ten in this episode and about nine or ten in the other one. Anyway, these guys are the best of the best, probably not just of our lifetime but of any lifetime. So there's a lot of wisdom there and who knows how much longer they'll be running Berkshires. So um, get it in while you can and enjoy this episode. And for anyone who is interested in watching the full version of this, it is on YouTube. Just uh, type in Berkshire Hathaway uh, Annual General Meeting and Yahoo, and it should be the first link that comes up. As Ren said, it is a, a good chunk, three and a half hours, but... No, no, it's tuned... like, no, seven hours. Sorry, seven hours, yeah. <laughs> um, we watched it in two chunks. I tuned into the second half, and it's actually just 
a, a really entertaining watch from the perspective of seeing how the, both of them just engage on stage. Like Charlie Munger absolutely doesn't give a flying shit about anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing uh-huh. at all. He is so unfazed. <laughs> uh, just seeing the way they engage with each other is really entertaining. So if you are interested to at least see what they look like and whatnot, jump on YouTube and, and uh, check it out. And one other thing I think, Ren, before we jump into it is we would obviously like to get some feedback on these sorts of episodes. We're trying to try a few different things um, in terms of delivering content to you guys over the next few months or so. We've got a few ideas that we'll work through, but uh, obviously we would love to hear feedback. And if if these are things that you really like us doing, then um, hit us up on social media and let us know and we'll continue doing more things like this because we certainly get a lot out of it. But um, if if it's not what you guys want, then obviously let us know. But if it is, we'd like to hear from you. So yeah, and and we hear you about the lithium episode. It's coming. Feel yes. free to keep telling us. But uh, yeah. aside from an episode on lithium miners, let us let us yeah. know what you want to hear. Yeah, we've got lithium coming. We've got bonds coming. Bonds is another big one that people keep asking about. Um, commodities is something that people are asking about as well, just in general. So we'll, we'll aim to do something there. And also small caps is something that keeps coming through. So we've got some contacts that uh, we'll sit down and have a chat to, uh, all things small caps. So, yeah, we do get your feedback and uh, obviously we're limited by our capacity to get it all done in a short space of time. So just stick with us and, and we will get get to it eventually. So, uh, anything else, Ren? No, I think uh, that's it. Enjoy. Equity, mate. G'day, equity mates. It's just Ren here today, no Bryce. It's his birthday today, so we've given him the day off and I will be doing the transitions for our second part of Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting Q&A session. It was a whole seven hours. We've listened to it so you guys don't have to and we've got the second part of what we thought were the best and most interesting questions for you guys to enjoy. If you haven't listened to part one, we released it on Thursday should be in your podcast feed or it's on, on our website. But here is part two, kicking us off the first question about C's Candy, an investment that Warren and Charlie made a long time ago. And while it's given them some good returns, the question is asking them why it hasn't been able to grow outside of its niche. Hello, Warren, Charlie. Um, I'm Luis Cobo from Panama. I'm a proud Berkshire Hathaway shareholder since 10 years ago. And um, I've been looking at these candies and I am a pretty good fan of them. And I see Charlie's as well through our meeting. Um, And even with all our consumption, and you know, the company has given us generous profits over the past decades. What do you think the company has not grown to the scale of Mars or Hershey's, and what do you think we could do to make this company you know, grow and become a bigger part of our company, being such an amazing product? Well, we probably had a dozen or so ideas over the years, and we used to really focus on it because it was much more, a much more sizable part of our business. In fact, it was practically our only business aside from insurance. And uh, like I say, we've had 10 or 12 ideas. Some of them we've tried more than once, and as we've had a new manager, they've tried them, and and the truth is none of them really work. And uh, uh, the business is extraordinarily good, 
in a very small niche. Box chocolates are something that everybody likes to receive or maybe give as a gift, both sides of it. And relatively few of the people uh, go out and buy to consume themselves. Uh, if, if I leave a box of chocolates open at the office, we've only got 25 people, but it's gone, you know, almost immediately. If I take it as a gift to somebody, they're happy to get it. That, uh, and, and if you leave the box open at a dinner party, again, they're all gone. But those same people that so readily grab it when it's right there in front of them do not walk out to a candy store very often and, and buy it just to eat themselves. They're not going to buy it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very much a gift product. It does not, it does not grow worldwide. Very interesting thing. People in, at least the last time I checked, people in the West prefer dark, milk chocolate. People in the East prefer dark chocolate. People in the West like big, chunky pieces. People in the East will take miniatures. And, and it's, we, we've tried to move it geographically many, 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 many times because it would be so wonderful if it, when it works, it works wonderfully. And, but it, it, it doesn't travel that well. We, if we open a store in the East, we get enormous traffic for a while, and everybody says, we've been waiting for you to come, and then it finally, we end up with a store that does X pounds per year when we need one and a half X uh, in the same square footage to make terrific returns, and, and uh, we, we've tried everything because the, the math is so good when it works. And overall, we have a business that doesn't, doesn't grow. Chocolate consumption generally doesn't doesn't grow that much, but yeah, obviously, yeah, go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, well, we fail in turning our little candy company into Mars or Hershey's for the same reason that you failed to get the Nobel Prize in Physics and achieve immortality. <laughs> it's too tough for us. But we put $25 million into it, and it's given us over $2 billion of pre-tax income, well over $2 billion, and we've used it to buy other businesses. And if, if, we'd, if we were the typical company and had bought that business and tried desperately to make, use all the retained earnings within the candy business, I think we'd have fallen on our face. I think that it, it just illustrates that all these formulas you, know, you learn or that, that having a strategic plan to use all the capital. Some businesses work in a fairly limited area, others really play out over. Does Dr. Pepper, you know, has a, I don't know what the, what the percentage is now, but it might be a 10 or 12% market share or something like that in, in Dallas, or maybe it's eight, but and then you go to Detroit or Boston and it's, it's, it's less than 1%. I'm not sure about the numbers currently, but, but you'd think in a mobile society, you know, with Dr. Pepper having been around since the time Coke was founded in 1886. Uh, it, it's amazing how certain things travel, certain things don't travel. At, uh, you know, the candy bars, you mentioned uh, Hershey. I mean, Cadbury doesn't do that well here, and Hershey doesn't necessarily do that well in the UK, and here we are, we all look alike, but somehow we eat different candy bars. We, it's, 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 uh, it's very interesting to observe, and the idea that you have some formula for businesses 
that provide that each one should pursue uh, the course they're on because they made it in X, they should try to find other ways to make it in X. We're quite willing to find it in A, B, C, D, E, or F, which is like the money is fungible. And uh, I think actually it's worked very much to our advantage to have that philosophy. So, anything further, Charlie? I once told a very great man at dinner after he'd written a very great book, I said, you know, you're never going to write another great book like that. And he was deeply offended. And I've read his four subsequent bits and I, books, and I'm totally right. To write one great book is a lot to do in one lifetime. And the people aren't holding back on you when they don't do more. It's hard. So there's something in that answer that goes to why Berkshire is such a special company and been such a success over the long term. When C's Candy failed to continue to grow, rather than continuing to make new plans and continuing to put more capital into the company, Warren and Charlie were able to take the money it was spitting out and invest it in more profitable enterprises in other industries rather than just the candy industry. So as Warren said, they've put $25 million in and they've got $2 billion in earnings out. That's a pretty good result for any investor. But what they haven't had to do is then use those earnings to reinvest in their candy business to try and grow that to satisfy new investors. Instead, they could take that $2 billion in earnings and put it into other areas that make better returns. So that's something that's really unique about Berkshire compared to a lot of other companies we can buy and sell and part of the reason why they've been really special over the years. So speaking of taking that money and putting it into other businesses, this next question is about one of Berkshire's biggest holdings today, and that's Apple. Question on technology and company's biggest holding now. Uh, Given that Apple is now our largest holding, tell us more about your thinking. What do you think about the regulatory challenges the company faces, for example? Spotify has filed a complaint against Apple in Europe on antitrust grounds. Elizabeth Warren has proposed ending Apple's control over the App Store, which would impact the company's strategy to increase its services businesses. Are these criticisms fair? Well, again, we're not... I will tell you that all of the things, the points you've made, I'm aware of, and I like our Apple holdings very much. I mean, it is our largest holdings. And actually, what hurts in the case of Apple is that the stock has gone up. And we'd much rather have the stock, and I'm not proposing anything be done about it, but we'd much rather have the stock at a lower price so we could buy more stock. And importantly, um, if Apple, I think they authored another, authorized another $75 billion the other day, but let's say they're going to spend $100 billion in buying in their stock in the next three years. You know, it's very simple. If they buy it at 200, they're going to get 500 million shares. They've got 4 billion, 600 million out now, and so they'll end up with 4.1 billion under that circumstance. If they're buying it at 150, they buy in 667 million shares. And instead of owning what we would own the first case, we now the divisor would be less than 4 billion and we'd own a greater percentage of it. So in effect, a a major portion of of earnings at least possibly has been it's at least been authorized will be spent in terms of increasing our ownership without us paying out a dime, which I love for a business a, a wonderful business and uh, the recent development when the stock has moved up substantially actually hurts Berkshire over time. We, 
We'll still do fine. My opinion, we'll do fine. But we're not going to get into, uh, uh, we're not going to dissect uh, our expectations about Apple, you know, for people who may be buying it against us tomorrow or something. We don't, we don't give away investment advice on that for nothing. But we have all the, pro all the things you've mentioned, obviously, we, we know about. We know some. We've got a whole bunch of other variables that we crank into it, and we like the fact that it's our largest holding. Charlie? Well, in my family, the people who have Apple phones, it's the last thing they'll give up. It's not a bad item to have. So there you have a very confident Warren Buffett talking about his Apple holdings and saying if, if only the price hadn't gone up, he would have been buying more. So interesting thoughts on a company that some people have been saying are overvalued and their iPhone sales are slowing down. Warren and Charlie obviously seeing things a little bit differently. So next up, we've got a question asking Warren and Charlie uh, what they value. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, Warren and Charlie. My name is Rob Lee from Vancouver, Canada. Um, could you please share with us what do you value the most in life now? Thank you. Well, well I like to have a little more of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the two things you can't buy, time and love, and that... Uh, I value those for a long time, and, and I've been very, very, very lucky in life in being able to control my own time to extreme degree. Charlie's always valued that, too. That's, that's why we really wanted to have money, was so we could do what we damn pleased, basically, in our life. <laughs> it wasn't six houses or boats or anything. Well, Charlie's got a boat, but it doesn't do us that much good. But, but time... Uh, is valuable, and that's that's, uh, and we are very very lucky to be in jobs where physical ability doesn't make any difference. And you know, we we we've got the perfect job for a couple of guys with aging bodies, and uh, we get to do what we love to do every day. I mean, I literally, uh, I I could do anything that money could buy, pretty much, and uh, I'm having more fun doing what I do than doing anything else, and Charlie is designing, designing dormitories, and I mean, he, 
he's got an interesting life, and, and uh, he brings a lot to it. He still reads, you know, more books in a, in a week than I get done in a month, and he remembers what he reads. And so we've got it very good, but we, we don't have unlimited time. And, and whatever we do to free up the time to do what we like to do, and we both maximize that in our lives, uh, we do. Anybody's lucky if he gets what he spends his time at he really likes doing. That's that's a blessing. Yeah, we we've had so much good luck in life. It's it, it sort of blows your mind. It's, it's starting with being being born in the United States and uh, Canada would be fine too. Incidentally, I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> The Berkshire Hathaway meeting is always known for a bit of wisdom from Warren and Charlie about life as well as markets, and as you heard from that answer, this one was no different. Next up, on a completely different note, a much more market-focused note, we actually have a questioner from Australia asking about activist investors and what will happen when Warren and Charlie are no longer at the helm of the company. Uh, This question comes from Stuart Boyd, who's a chemical engineer from Australia. He says, currently Berkshire would be incredibly difficult for an activist investor to target because, number one, Warren, your ownership stake is large. Number two, shareholders appreciate the business is more valuable operating under the Berkshire umbrella rather than being sold off in pieces. And number three, the sheer size or market capitalization of Berkshire is an entry or entry barrier for most activist investors. Warren and Charlie, after your ownership has been completely distributed, will Berkshire be more vulnerable to activist investors? I'm guessing this isn't something that keeps you up at night, but thought it was worth asking. No, it's going to happen quite a few decades after my death. Yeah. I don't think I'll be bothered much by it. <laughs> Well, anything can happen. It's a low probability. It it can't happen for a lot of years in terms of the way my stock gets distributed and in terms of the way other stock is held. But in the end, Berkshire should prove itself over time. I mean, there are no perpetuities, that, and it needs to deserve to be to be continued in its present form. It it has a lot of attributes that are uh, maximized by being in one entity, which people don't fully understand. They think if you spin off something that would command a high PE, that therefore value has been unlocked, which is to- totally nonsense. I mean, it's already built in. Uh, and it, you know, one, one day out, you, know, you might have an extra 3% or 5% in price, but over, over the years, we want to keep the wonderful businesses, but eventually, uh, I think the culture will remain one of a kind. I think that we will be able to do things other people can't do. I think that the advantages of having them in one spot will likely uh, be significant over time. And if that happens, uh, no activist uh, is going to take it over. And if if the model doesn't work for some reason over a long period of time, then something else should happen. Next up, we have a question on how you can build your circle of investing competence. Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, thank you for taking my question. My name is Feroz Kayum, and I'm from Mississauga in Canada, 
and now live in New York. My question is how to best emulate your success in building your circle of competence. Given the environment today in investing is a lot more competitive than when you started out, what would you do differently, if anything at all, when building your circle? Would you still build a very broad generalist framework? Or would you build a much deeper but narrower focus, say, on industries, markets, or even a country? And if so, which ones would interest you? Thank you. Yeah, well, you're right. It is much more competitive now than when I started. And you would, uh, when I started, I literally could take the Moody's Industrial Manual, the Moody's Banks and Financial Manual, and I could go through page by page and at least run my run my eyes over every company and think about which ones I might think more about. Uh, but it's it's important. I would just do a lot, a whole lot of reading. I'd try and learn as much as I could about as many businesses, and I would try to figure out which ones I really had uh, some important knowledge and understanding that was uh, probably different than overwhelmingly most of my competitors, and I would, I would uh, also try and figure out where, which ones I didn't understand, and I would focus on having as big a circle as I could have and, as, and also focus on being as realistic as I could about where the perimeters of my circle of competence were. I knew when I met Lorimer Davidson in January of 1951, I could get insurance. I mean, it, what he said made so much sense to me in the three or four hours I spent with him on that Saturday. So I dug into it and I I, I could understand it. My mind worked well in that respect. Uh, I didn't think I could understand retailing. All I'd done was work for the same grocery store that Charlie had, and neither one of us learned that much about retailing, except it was harder work than we liked. And uh, you've got to do the same thing, and you've got way more competition now. But uh, if you get to know even about a relatively small area, more than other people do, and you don't feel the compulsion to act too often. You just you just wait till you wait till the odds are strongly in your favor. Uh, it's still a very interesting game. It's harder than it used to be, Charlie. Well, I think the right strategy for the great mass of humanity is to specialize. Nobody wants to go to a doctor that's half proctologist and half dentist, you know, <laughs> and. And, well, and the, so the ordinary way to succeed is to narrowly specialize. Warren and I really didn't do that. And, that, and we didn't because we, we prefer the other type of activity. But I don't think we can recommend it to other people. Yeah, it was a little more treasure hunting in our day. And, and it was easy to spot the treasure. We made it work, but it was kind of a lucky thing. Yeah. It's not the standard way to go. The business, at least I best understood, actually was insurance. I mean, I, uh, and, and I had very little competition. And, you know, I would, if I went to, I went to the insurance department in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I remember one time I drove there just to check on some Pennsylvania company. And this is when you couldn't get all this information on the Internet. And I went in and I asked about some company. And the guy said, you're the first one that's ever asked about that company. And, uh, uh. There wasn't a lot 
I went over to the Standard and Poor's Library on Houston, Houston Street, I guess they call it, and, and I would go up there and ask for all this obscure information, and there wasn't anybody sitting around there. They had a bunch of tables that you could sit and examine things through, and uh, so it was, there, was, there was less competition. But if you know even one thing very well, um, it, it, it'll give you an edge at some point. At, uh, you know, it's what Tom Watson Sr. said at IBM, you know, uh, I'm no genius, but I'm smart in spots, and I stay around those spots. And that's, that's basically what Charlie and I try to do, and I think that's probably what you can do, but you'll find that those spots... Yeah, we did it in several fields. That's hard. Yeah. And we got our head handed to us a few times, too. Yeah. Next question is about environmental, social, and governance metrics, things that investors use to measure the sustainability of companies they're considering investing in, uh, and something that Berkshire Hathaway and Berkshire Hathaway's subsidiary companies have traditionally not reported on. Larry Fink of BlackRock has predicted that in the near future, all investors will be using ESG, environmental social governance metrics, to help determine the value of a company. I'm worried we don't score well on everything from climate to diversity to inclusion. How well do you think Berkshire measures up on those metrics, and are they valuable metrics? I think in reality we measure up well, but we don't, we don't participate in preparing reports for anybody that asks about it. And we have this, this idea that uh, even though all shareholders are equal, we sort of, we, we prefer individual shareholders. We actually prefer people we know uh, as co-owners. And we don't want to be preparing uh, a lot of reports and asking 60 subsidiaries each to do something where they'll, they'll set up a team and then mail things to headquarters and then we'll supply them to somebody who, if our stock goes up some, is probably going to sell it anyway. We want our managers to do the right things. We give them enormous latitude to do that, and I think that our batting average really is quite good. You saw the in the movie we talked about having 100% of the electricity we sell in Iowa come from essentially wind generation. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to do it 24 hours a day. We sell some and we buy it, but essentially we will be creating as much wind energy as all of our customers use in electricity. There's one competitive, there's one other utility, electric utility that's about our size and roughly our size in Iowa. And they, they, have, they have practically no wind uh, uh, resources and uh, the wind blows where they exist too. But we, have, we will have that 100%. As a matter of fact, it's a moving target because we do so well, uh, partly we do so well on, on, on wind generation that uh, a number of the high-tech companies want to locate in Iowa and get clean energy from us at very low prices, and therefore the moving target becomes our growth in customers in that area. But we're not going to put out a re- we're not we, we are not going to spend our, the time of the people at Berkshire Hathaway Energy uh, responding to questionnaires are trying to score better with somebody that is working on that. Uh, it's just uh, 
we trust our managers, and I think the performance is, is at least decent, and, uh, uh, and we keep expenses and needless reporting down to a minimum at Berkshire. We do not get, I mentioned this in the annual report, I, don't, I can't imagine another company like it, but here we are with $500 billion of market capitalization. We do not have a consolidated P&L monthly. We don't need it. You know, now, I can't imagine any other organization doing that, but we don't need it. And uh, we're not going to tie up resources, people resources, doing things we don't need to do just because it's the sort of standard procedure of, in, in corporate America. And corporate America is very worried about, in general, they're very worried about uh, whether somebody's going to upset their apple cart, you know, and with activists and everything. So they want to be very sure that every shareholder is, is happy on issues like that. And, and, and then, fortunately, we don't have to worry about that, so we don't have to run up a lot of expenses. Uh, doing things that don't actually let us run the business uh, better. Charlie? Well, I think in Berkshire, the environmental stuff has done one level down from us. And I think Greg Abo is just terrific at it. And so I think we score very well. When it gets to so-called best corporate practices, I think the people who talk about them don't really know what the best practices are. They just know what they think are the best practices. And they determine that based on what will sell, not, not what will work. And so I like our way of doing things better than theirs, and I hope to God we never follow their best practices. Yeah. 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 I'd like to point out one thing on independent directors. I mean, I've been on 20 public company corporate boards, not counting any Berkshire or its subsidiaries. So I've, I've seen a lot of corporate boards operate, and uh, the independent directors, in many cases, are, are, the, are the least independent. I mean, if, if the income you receive as a corporate director, which typically may be around 250000 a year now, if that's an important part of your income, and you hope that some other corporation calls the CEO and says, how's so-and-so as a director, and they the current CEO, your CEO says, oh, he's fine, you know, never raises any problems. Uh, and then you get on another board at 250000 and that's an important part. How in the world is that independent? I mean, it, it's, it, I really, just on observation, I, I, I can't recall particularly any independent director where their income was from the board was important to them, I can't recall them ever doing anything in board meetings or committee meetings that actually was counter to the interests. You know, they put them on the comp committee. I mean, they, they're just not going to upset the apple cart because what they're, and I would, I'd probably behave the same way in the same position. I mean, if, if 250,000 years is important to you, why in the hell would you behave in a way that's going to cause your CEO to say to the next CEO, say, this guy acts up a little bit too much, you, you know, you really better get somebody else. It's the way it works, but they've got yeah, these I think ideas. it works a little worse than Warren's telling you. <laughs> yeah, Charlie and it's I— It's really awful. It was awful. I mean, we— And only that Warren and I are, we occupy the niche for pomposity very well ourselves. We don't need any more of it. <laughs>
Charlie and I were on one board. Well, I was on one board, actually, a long time ago, where uh, we owned a very significant percentage of the company. And the rest of the board was almost exclusively customers of the company, uh, but not owners. They had absolutely token holdings. And at one point, we were looking at something where a tax decision was being made in terms of the distribution of some securities. And it was a lot of money was involved. And one of the other directors said, well, let's just swallow the tax. Well, his swallowing amounted to about $15 or something or amount of money. I said, let's parse this sentence out. Let's swallow the tax. Let's let us swallow the tax. So who wants to swallow an equal amount to, you know, to me? Uh, it's, you know, it's, you don't, you don't get invited to be on boards if you belch too often at the dinner well, table. Well, Blue Chip Stamps, we had a director who said, I don't see why you guys should get be so important just because you own all the shares. Yeah. Charlie, <laughs> Charlie and I used to have to cool off after the Blue Chip Stamps meetings because we, we, we and Rick Aaron owned what percent probably? Oh, uh, yeah, 50%. Yeah, 50%, and they'd appointed all the... the it, it, They're it came, all members of the Rotary Club. It came out of a government settlement or something, and, and uh, it was not an ideal form of, of, of uh, decision-making. And they just had a different calculus in their mind that we did. And, and I can understand it, but I'm not going to replicate it. <laughs> a long answer there from Warren, but I think it touches on some really interesting things for people who are considering investing in companies, but also for people who work in big publicly traded companies both around ESG metrics and how we measure the sustainability of companies. But then in the second half of that question around the independence of board members and how we can ensure that board members aren't conflicted just by virtue of getting their paycheck from, a, from the company they work for and the boards they sit on. So next question is a little bit different. Warren has often been quoted talking about the value of index investing yet he doesn't really emulate it in his own portfolio. Instead, a lot of his cash he holds in bonds and other investments like that. So this question challenges Warren on why he spruiks index investing for everyday investors on one hand, but hasn't been deploying his cash in that way for Berkshire. Warren, you are a big advocate of index investing and of not trying to time the market. But by your having Berkshire hold such a large amount of cash and T-bills, it seems to me you don't practice what you preach. I'm thinking that a good alternative would be for you to invest most of Berkshire's excess cash in a well-diversified index fund until you find an attractive acquisition or buyback stock. Had you done that over the past 15 years, all the time keeping the $20 billion cash cushion you want, I estimate that at the end of 2018, the company's $112 billion balance in cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments in T-bills would have instead been worth about $155 billion. The difference between the two figures is an opportunity cost equal to more than 12% of Berkshire's current book value. What is your response to what I say? And for I forgot to say, the question is from Mike Elzhar, who is with the Colony Group located in Boca Raton, Florida. That's a perfectly decent question, and I, I wouldn't quarrel with the numbers. And I would say that that, that, that is an alternative.
for example, that my successor uh, may wish to employ, because on balance, I would rather own uh, an index fund than, than, than carry treasury bills. I would, I would say that if we'd instituted that policy in 2007 or 8, uh, we might have been in a different position in terms of, of our ability to move uh, late in 2008 or 2009. Uh, so it, it has certain it has certain execution problems with hundreds of billions of dollars than it does if you were having a similar policy with a billion or two billion or something of the sort. But it's a perfectly it's a perfectly rational observation and. Certainly, looking back on 10 years uh, of a bull market, it, it, it really jumps out at you. But I would argue that, that, uh, that uh, if, if you're working smaller numbers, it, it would make a lot of sense. And if you're working with large numbers, it's, it, it might well make sense in the future at Berkshire to operate that way. You know, we committed $10 billion a week ago, and there are conditions under which, and they're not, they're not remote, they're not likely in any given week or month or year, but, but there are conditions under which we could spend $100 billion very, very quickly. Uh, uh, and if we did, if those conditions existed, it would be the capital very well deployed and much better than in an index fund. And so we've been, uh, we're operating on the basis that we will get chances to deploy capital. They will come in clumps in all likelihood, and uh, they will come when other people don't want to allocate capital. Charlie, what do you think about it? Well, I plead guilty to being a little more conservative with the cash than other people, and but I think that's all right. Uh, we could have put all the money into a lot of securities that would have done better than the S&P. The 2020 hindsight. Remember, we had all that extra cash all that period if something had come along in the way of opportunities and so on. I don't think it's a sin to be a little strong on cash when you're as big a company as we are. Uh, we don't have to. I watched Harvard use the last ounce of their cash, including all their prepaid tuition from the parents, and plunge it into the market at exactly the wrong moment and make a lot of forward commitments to private equity. And they suffered like two or three years of absolute agony. We plus, don't want to be like Harvard. Plus timber and a whole bunch of that. I mean, plus timber and I mean. It, yeah, yeah, we're not going to change. <laughs> we, we, we do like having a lot of money to be able to operate very fast and very big. And we don't. And maybe we won't, we know we won't get those opportunities frequently. I don't think, uh, it, certainly, you know, in the next, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years, there'll be a, two or three times when it'll be raining gold and all you have to do is go outside. But uh, uh, we don't know when they will happen. And, and we have a lot of money to commit. And I would say that if you told me I had to either carry short-term treasury bills or have index funds and just let that money be invested in American generally, I would take the index funds. But we still have hopes. And the one thing you should very definitely understand about Berkshire is that we run the business in a way 
that we think is consistent with serving shareholders who have virtually all of their net worth in Berkshire. I happen to be in that position myself, but I would do it that way under any circumstances. We have a lot of people who trust us, who, who uh, really have disproportionate amounts of Berkshire compared to their net worth uh, if you were to follow standard investment procedures. And, and uh, uh, we want to make money for everybody, but we want to make very, very sure that we don't lose permanently money from anybody, for anybody that buys our stock somewhere around intrinsic business value to begin with. We, we just have an, we have an aversion to having a million plus shareholders, maybe as many as two million, and having a lot of them uh, ever really lose money if they're willing to stay with us for a while. And we know how people behave if, when, when the world generally is, is uh, upset. And uh, they want to be with something. I think they want to be with something that they feel is like the Rockers of Brawler. And, and uh, we have a, we have a, disp we have a real disposition toward that group. Next question is a good one for anyone who's thought about the rise of automation and AI and what it means for the future of work. Here we have a questioner asking Warren his thoughts on this topic. Hi, Warren. Hi, Charlie. My name is Carrie, and this is my daughter, Chloe. She's 11 weeks. It's her very first Berkshire meeting. <laughs> <laughs> We're from San Francisco, and we have a question on employment for you. As both a major employer and a producer of consumer goods, what do you make of the uncertain outlook for good full-time jobs with the rise of automation and temporary employment? Well, if we'd asked that question 200 years ago uh, and somebody said, with the outlook for development of farm machinery and tractors and combines and so on, meaning that 90% of the people on farms were going to be lose their job. Uh, it would look terrible, wouldn't it? But our economy and our people, our system, has been remarkably ingenious in achieving whatever we have now, 160 million jobs, when throughout the period, ever since 1776, we've been figuring out ways to get rid of jobs. That's what capitalism does, and it produces more and more goods per person. And we never know exactly where they're going to come from. I mean, it, it uh, you know, I don't know what, if you were, if you were, uh, whatever, uh, Occupation. Well, if you were in the passenger train business, I mean, you know, you were going to, that was going to change. But we find ways in this economy to employ more and more people, and we've got now more people employed than ever in the history of the country, even though company after country and company, and particularly in heavy industry and that sort of thing, has been trying to figure out naturally how to get more productive all the time, which means turning out the same number of goods with fewer people or, or turning out more goods with the same number. That's, that is capitalism. I don't, think, I don't think you need to worry about American ingenuity uh, running out. I mean, I mean you, uh, you look at people in all kinds of, I mean, 
of businesses, and they like to make money, but they really like to, they like to be inventive. You know, they like, they, they like to do things. And, uh, and this economy, uh, it works. It will continue to work, and it will be very, it's very tough uh, in certain industries, and there will be dislocations. You know, we won't be making as many horseshoes and that sort of thing when cars come along and all of that. But we do find ways now to employ whatever we're employing, 155, whatever it is, million people, and supporting a population of 330 million people. When we started with 4 million people, with 80% of the labor being employed on farms. So this system works and it will continue to work. And I, I don't know what the next big thing will be. <clears throat> I do know there will be a next big thing. Charlie? Well, we want to shift the scud work to the robots to the extent we can. That's what we've been doing, as Warren said, for 200 years. Nobody wants to go back to being a blacksmith or scooping along the street, picking up the horseman or whatever help these people used to do. Uh, we're glad to have that work eliminated. And a lot of this worry about the future comes from leftists who worry terribly that, that uh, the people at the bottom of the economic pyramid have had a little stretch when the people at the top got ahead faster. That happened by accident because we were in so much trouble that we had to flood the world with money and drive interest rates down to zero. And of course, that drove asset prices up and helped the rich. Nobody did that because they suddenly loved the rich. It was just an accident, and it, it, it will soon pass. Uh, I, we, we want to have all this productivity improvement, and we shouldn't worry a little about the fact that one class or another is all ahead at one stretch. Charlie, Charlie and I, we worked in a grocery store, and when people ordered a can of beans, we had ladders that we climbed up to reach the can of beans, and then we placed it in a folding box, and then we put it on the truck. And if you looked at the amount of food actually transferred between the producer and the person who consumed it, and the, per and the number of people involved in the transaction, you know, it was, I don't know whether it was one-third or one-quarter or one-fifth as efficient as the way, the best way now to get food delivered to you, and, and, you know, food was worse. <laughs> and, and my grandfather would, you know, was distressed about the fact that, that, that this particular credit and delivery kind of store would, would be eliminated, and it was eliminated, but society It's coming back. Pardon? It, it's, it's coming back. It's coming back, but more efficiently. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we've, we've seen a little creative destruction, and, and, Frankly, we're glad that it freed us up to go into the investment business. It worked out better for us. Next up, we have a question on investing overseas and some of the differences uh, Warren and Charlie have to other companies looking to acquire. Yeah, yeah, Warren, just want to kind of maybe follow up on those past two questions because there is sort of a theme there. It, it seems to me that there's definitely more of a home country bias when we look at the acquisitions and investments that Berkshire's done historically, 
And while there's definitely value in sticking with what you know and, and feel the most comfortable with, it seems like you've gone from a model that was originally focused on putting boots on the ground to find investment and acquisition opportunities to one where you, you're seemingly more content to have sellers or the representatives call you or drop by the office, basically more of a pool model than a push model. There's nothing wrong with this, but I just wonder if the opportunity cost that comes with this type of model is that Berkshire misses out on a lot of overseas business where owners are unaware of your willingness to step up and buy them outright and allow them to run their companies under the Berkshire umbrella and missing stocks investment opportunities because Berkshire's not necessarily familiar enough with the local market. At this point, do you think Berkshire would benefit from putting more boots on the ground in these overseas markets? Now we actually must have been, after we bought his car, Aton Wertheimer um, convinced me that that we should get more exposure in Europe. And he, and, he, and, he, and he helped out in doing that. I went over, he arranged uh, various meetings. Uh, we've had a lot of contact. It isn't that they're not, a, they're not aware. Uh, and we do hear about some, but we do have the problem. They've got to be sizable. I mean, if we do a, a billion-dollar acquisition and it makes hundred million dollars or thereabouts pre-tax, eighty million dollars after tax. You know, it, it's if we really know the business and we're sure we're not going to have a problem with the people running it being being motivated in the future and doing a similar job as to when they had their own money and everything. It's nice to to add eighty million to twenty-five billion, but it. You can't afford to spend lots of time doing that, and we've we've we gained something by having Todd and Ted uh, do some looking at things, screening them, and all that sort of thing. But uh, in the end, you want somebody that some family that's held, held their business in Europe or in the UK for 50 or 100 years that can make a deal and that. And that wants to do it uh, with Berkshire. I mean, if they're if they're looking for to get the most money, if they want to have an auction, we're not going to win and we're not going to participate because we're not going to waste our time on it. Uh, it it's uh, if we form a acquisition crew, they'll acquire something. I mean, I, I've, I've watched so many institutions in operation that. Uh, uh, you know, if, you're, if your job every day is to go to work and screen a bunch of things with the idea that you're the strategic department or acquisition department, you're going to want to do something. I, I want to do something, but I don't want to do something unless Berkshire benefits by it and clearly benefits by it, and it's generally it's of a size. Warren, our problem is not, not like a boots on the ground. Our problem is the people on the ground are paying prices that we don't want to pay. Yeah. That's our problem. We can, we, that problem is not going to be cured by boots. We can spend $100 billion in the next year. That is not a problem. No. Spending it intelligently is a huge problem. And, and uh, our, our competitors are buying with somebody else's money, and they get part of the upside and take none of the downside. And that is hard up. to compete with people like that. Yeah. They'll leverage it up. They'll make a lot of money if it fails, and they'll make even more money if it succeeds. And... Uh, that's not our. That's not our equation. No, uh, and that has that isn't always that way. But it's it's certainly that way now. It's probably uh, 
And it's not in the shareholders' interest that we get to be like everybody else. The next question is on one of Berkshire's longest-held investments, American Express. The questioner is wondering in the hyper-competitive world of online payments and credit cards today, with new entrants like Apple and PayPal really taking a big chunk out of the market, where American Express's future lies and where it fits in at Berkshire. Uh, this question comes from Lidor Zluf, Yossi Zluf, and Dan Gorfung of Israel. And they write to, to both Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, do you think that Amex's share of mind is enough to win the credit cards race? How do you see Amex's competitive position now compared to the past? And who is the most threatening competitor now compared to the past? Yeah, everybody's a competitor, and including now Apple that has just instituted a a uh, card, I guess, in conjunction with uh, Goldman Sachs. Everybody, there, there will always be, in my view, many, many competitors in the business. Banks can't afford to leave the field. It's a growing field. They build up receivables on it. But I, I wouldn't think of a, I wouldn't think of the credit card business uh, as one, as a one-model business any more than I would think of the car business uh, as essentially being one model. I mean. Ferrari is going to make a lot of money, but they're going to have just a portion of the market. Well, Amex, Amex is growing around the world with individuals, is growing around the world with small businesses. Uh, you just saw the contract they made with Delta, which is probably the ideal partner that runs, uh, what, for eight or nine, whatever it may be, nine or ten years, actually. Uh, it's... You know, the billings go up per capita, they go up, they, the, the coverage spreads, uh, and they're going to have loads of competition, uh, and they always will. Uh, but they had, uh, you know, that, that's something uh, J.P. Morgan, you know, took on the Platinum card and the, was a competitor, and the Platinum card had uh, highest renewal rates that they've had, and they Increased the price, I think, from 450 to 550 dollars during a competitive battle, and retention improved, and new business improved, and 68 percent or so of the new business was was millennials. I mean, it it is a it is not an identical product with anything else, and, and as a premium card, it has a clientele which is large. It may only be. It may, be X, it may be X percent of the market, maybe three quarters of X percent or whatever it may be. It isn't, it isn't for the person that likes to have five cards and look every day at which one provides the most rewards that day or in what gas stations or something of the sort. But it's got a very large constituency that has a, a renewal rate, a usage rate that's the envy of everybody else in the industry. So I'm, I, uh, I like our... American Express position uh, very well, Charlie. Charlie, anything on no. American Express? No, I, I, <laughs> I think we own the world as long as the technology stays the same. Now we, it's an interesting thing. This I have year, no opinion about technology. This year, the technology is not is not the whole thing. I mean, you know, it, it, uh, fortunately, I mean, it, uh, uh, if you look at credit card usage, uh, 
there are a lot of different things motivating different people to use different various types of payment systems. And there's a lot of them that are growing. There's some of them that are, that are marginal. And, and American Express is an extraordinary operation. And I think this year, our share of the earnings, well, by next year, our share of the earnings of American Express will be equal to the cost of our position. We'll be earning 100% on what that position uh, cost us, and I think it will grow. But, uh, and I think the number of shares will go down and our interest will go up without us without us uh, laying out a dime. So it's, it's a... As you say, we own the world if it doesn't change. Well, even if it changes something. The world has changed a lot. American Express was formed in 1850. No, I'm talking about WeChat. You can talk about you can talk about all kinds of competitors, but, yeah. <laughs> but the American Express actually was an express company formed in 1850, like you say, by Wells and Fargo of all people, and uh, uh, you know for a while they carried these big trunks around of valuables, and and then the railroads came along, and that wasn't going to work very well anymore, so they went to the travelers' checks, and and it's a very interesting thing. In 1950, when I was living at 116th and Broadway, they were down at 65 Broadway, and they were the most important name in travel. They were synonymous with the integrity of their traveler's checks. And the whole company, in a record year for travel, earned $3 million. $3 million, what, what a bond trader earns now in my lifetime. That's what they've done with, and they, their hand going in was the traveler's check, which has more or less disappeared. But the the travelers, the American Express, uh, the power of that brand, intelligently used going into the credit card business, where they entered much later than the diners club, later than carte blanche, but they came to dominate the luxury end of the, the credit card business. It's, it's a fantastic story, and, and uh, I'm glad we own 18% of it. One thing that's quite notable about Warren and Charlie's investing career is how they've managed risk, even without a team of people under them helping them analyze and manage it, which is very rare for any big investor or investment bank. Uh, in this question, they talk a little bit about why that is the case and how that's actually helped them in understanding, assessing, and managing risk. Good afternoon. My name is Tony McCall and I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. And my question is about your discipline risk evaluation approach and how you balance that with the fact that perseverance and determination and grit are often necessary for success. Well, I'm not, <clears throat> I certainly like determination and grit in the, uh, in the, with the people we work for, but we, we don't have any formula that evaluates risk, but we, we, certainly, we certainly make a, our own calculation of risk versus reward in every transaction we do. And it's uh, true whether it's marketable securities, that's true whether it's private investments, that's true whether it's making an investment in a business. And Sometimes we're wrong, and we're going to be wrong sometimes in the future. You can't make a lot of decisions in this business without being wrong. But we don't think the procedure 
or the results would be changed favorably by having lots of committees and lots of spreadsheets and and and, and that sort of thing. It just uh, uh, you know, if I had a group under me, they would try and figure out what I wanted the answer to be, and they would tell me what I wanted to hear. And I've watched that approach it at 20 public companies and and. Uh, what the CEO wants to do, they, they may spend a lot of time getting there, but, uh, but the investment banker gets there and the internal uh, committees get there or the internal operations get there. The calculations are it's the same as the insurance business with a G. A G gets calls on insurance deals and you have to think through that deal. The main thing is, yeah, are you reasonably sure that you know what you're doing? And uh, uh, gets past that hurdle, then we go on to figure out the math of, of uh, gain versus loss and how much loss we can afford to take in anything. And we're willing to take what sound like large losses if we think that the rewards are, are more likely and, and proportional. Charlie? I've got nothing. Yeah, it's very disappointing. We have no formulas around Berkshire. We, we, don't, we don't sit down and and write a bunch, you know, uh, have people work till midnight calculating things and putting, putting spreadsheets together. And, and if the hurdle rate is 15% or something, having them all come out at 15.1 or 15.2, because that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's, you're going you're to get the numbers you want to hear to an extreme degree. And, uh, uh, the, the proposals we receive from the investment world, I've got to tell you about one because it it, it, uh, it illustrates go on. We, we received a proposition the other day, and I'll disguise the numbers a little bit so nobody uh, can pick it out. But it was a private company, and we'll say it was earning $100 million a year. But the seller of the business and the investment banker suggested that we should look at the earnings as being $110 million a year, because as a private company, they had to pay their top people in cash, which was expensed, but we could pay them in stock options and things like that, which weren't expensed or were explained as not really counting, and therefore we would, could report $110 million if we gave away something we didn't want to give away. But by essentially by, by sort of lying about our accounting, we could add $10 million to earning, and they wanted us to pay them because they couldn't do it, and we could do it, and therefore, at this point, they're losing me, of course, <laughs> totally, but it, it's just astounding, the, the accounting games that are played, all the adjustments are why the place should really be, will be earning more than before, it's, it's, it's a business. We also had one that came in from a private equity firm, and by a mistake, uh, we got the email that was sent to the manager from the email from the private equity firms that owned it to the manager in terms of making projections for it. And they told them to add 15% because they say Buffett will discount it by 15% or 20% anyway. So just, just add 15% to offset his conservatism. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not an elegant business, as Charlie will tell you. <laughs> you have any better stories, Charlie? <laughs> It's bad enough. <laughs> okay, Andrew. It's really very bad enough. Thank you, Warren. I think this Why do we want our leading citizens lying and cheating? All right, so at this stage, we've got three questions to go. 
the last two are about Warren and Charlie's legacy and how they think about Berkshire after they're no longer in charge. But before we get to that, there's one about a claim that Warren often makes, which is if he was managing just $1 million, he could make 50% returns annually. So a questioner asks him to explain uh, why he thinks that and how he would do that. My name is John Durso, and I'm from New York. Mr. Buffett, you've said that you could return 50% per annum if you were managing a $1 million portfolio. What type of strategy would you use? Would you invest in cigar butts, i.e. average businesses at very cheap prices, or would it be some type of arbitrage strategy? Thank you. It might well be the arbitrage strategy, but in a very different, perhaps, way than, than customary arbitrage is thought of. But one way or another, I can assure you, if Charlie was working with a million or I was working with a million, we would find a way to make that with, with essentially uh, no risk, not using a lot of leverage or anything of the sort. But you change the one million to a hundred million, and that fifty goes down like a like a rock. But, uh, uh, there are little fringe inefficiencies that people don't don't spot. And you do get opportunities occasionally to do, but but they don't really have any applicability to Berkshire. So, Charlie? Well, I agree totally. It's just what you used to say that large amounts of money, they develop their own anchors. Yeah. You just, it's, it gets harder and harder. I've just seen genius after genius with a great record, and pretty soon they got 30 billion and two floors of young men. And away goes the good record. It's just the way it works. But Charlie, it's hard as the money goes up. When Charlie was a lawyer, initially, I mean, you were developing a couple of real estate projects. Or, I mean, you find, if you really want to make a million dollars, or 50% on a million, and you're willing to work at it, and uh, you'll find, that's doable, but it just has no applicability to managing huge sums. But, uh, I wish it did, but it doesn't. Yeah, Lee Lu, using nothing but the float on his student loans, had a million dollars practically shortly after he graduated as a total scholarship student. He, he found just a few things to do yeah. and did them. All right, so the last two questions in this episode and in this two-part series on the 2019 Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings are about the company's legacy once Warren and Charlie are no longer leading it. Charlie's 95 and Warren's 88, so the day will come at some point uh, and there's a lot of investors and a lot of money at stake. So a few questions touched on this issue and we thought we would couple two of them up and uh, finish with this. So the first one is about the transition away from Warren and Charlie. Warren, a lot of Berkshire's success over the years has come from the fact that you and Charlie have had the luxury of being patient, waiting for the right opportunities to come along to put excess capital work, even if it has led to a buildup of large amounts of cash on the balance sheet. This has historically worked out well for shareholders as you and Charlie have been able to take full advantage of the disruptions in equity and credit markets or special situations like we saw with the Oxy deal to negotiate deals on terms that ultimately benefit Berkshire shareholders. That said, there is an opportunity cost attached to your decision to hold on to so much cash 
one that investors have been willing to bear, primarily by foregoing a return of excess capital as dividends and share purchases, as well as seeing lower returns on cash holdings. As we look forward, how certain can we be that this will still be the case once you're no longer running the show, especially if Berkshire's returns are expected to be lower over time? And is it not more likely that the next managers of Berkshire will have to manage the eventual migration of Berkshire from an acquisition and investment platform to a returning capital to shareholders vehicle? Yeah. Well, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, it's a possibility under me. It's a possibility under the successor. I mean, it's a question of can you invest truly large sums reasonably well. You can't do it as well as you can do small sums, so there's no question about that. But uh, uh, we will have to see how that works out over many years, because certain years, lots of opportunities, huge opportunities present themselves, and, and other years are, are totally dry holes. So uh, that's not a judgment you can make in a one-year period or a three-year period. It's certainly a judgment you can make over time, though. and, and I personally, my estate will, will uh, have basically nothing but Berkshire in it uh, for some time as it gets to dispersed to philanthropies. And I'm, I have a section in there which says uh, to the trustees, in effect, who manage it, I, I, have, a tr I have a section in there that says uh, ignore the, uh, your, 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 your exempt, is, from my standpoint, uh, from the law that trustees normally should diversify and do all of that sort of thing. And I, I want the entire amount that they have to be kept in Berkshire as they distribute it over time to the philanthropies. And I don't worry at all about the fact. I, I would like to have a very large sum go to the philanthropies, and I, I don't worry at all about the fact that it essentially will all be in Berkshire. I'm willing to make that decision while I'm alive, which will continue for some years after I die. So I have a lot of confidence in the ability of the Berkshire culture to endure and that we have the right people to make sure that that happens. But I'm betting my entire net worth on that, uh, and, uh, and that doesn't give me pause at all. I rewrite my will every few years, and I write it, I write it the same way in respect to the Berkshire Holdings. Charlie? Well, I don't own any indexes, and I have always been willing to be, own just two or three stocks, and I have not minded that everybody who teaches finance in uh, law school and business school teaches that what I'm doing is wrong. It isn't wrong. It's worked beautifully. Uh, I don't think you need a portfolio of 50 stocks if you know what you're doing. And I hope my heirs will just sit. Okay, so final question, and we will play this question and leave you all on this. So thanks for sticking with us. We know it's been a couple of long episodes, but we hope you've got something out of it. So this question is about Warren and Charlie's legacy with Berkshire and what they hope to leave the company after they're no longer there. Mr. Buffett. Mr. Munger, thank you so much for the wisdom you've shared with us over the years. This is Stephen Wood from New York. And um, Mr. Buffett, thank you very much for your feedback, your very generous feedback last August on the book that I'm writing. I just had one follow-up, if I may. In studying the most significant value creators of all time, it is very evident that the major compounding effect happened later at the later stages of the careers, or in Vanderbilt's case, even beyond his own career. 
So your recent investments have suggested to me that you are designing Berkshire to being a steady compounding machine that should continue to create value for a very long time. Would you both please elaborate on this compounding machine and the machine's ability to continue to adapt to keep this value creation durable? Uh, and then is this legacy one of your sort of primary motivations when you wake up every day? I would say it's the, it is the primary motivation, but it's been that for a very, very, very long time. No matter what was going right in my life, if things were going badly at Berkshire, I, I, I would not feel good. You know, and, uh, I don't need to be spending my time working on something that, that makes me feel bad about the results you know, when we get through. So, I, And it's, it's, it's something that's doable. I mean, the culture is stronger now than it was 10 years ago, and it was stronger then than 10 years previously. It moves slowly, but it goes in the right direction. And when we get chances to deploy the capital, we We've always tried to make any entity, whether it was the partnership originally or the or Berkshire now or blue chip snaps when we owned it or or even diversified retail, we, we wanted them all to be compounding, in effect be compounding machines. That's why people gave us capital, that's why we put our own capital in. And if we failed at it, we feel like we really felt like we'd failed. It didn't make any difference how much money we made from fees or anything like that. We 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 knew what our yardstick was and, and so that that will continue. I think Berkshire is better situated than it's ever been, except for the fact that size is a drag on performance. And I, I probably wrote that 40 years. Well, I wrote it actually when I closed the partnership to new money when we had like $40 million in it. I just said that, uh, that really the new, that additional capital would drag down returns from a $40 million base. So you can imagine how I feel with it. $368 billion base of capital in Berkshire now. But this culture is special. It can work. It won't be the highest compounder by a long shot against many other businesses. I think it won't be, it'll be one of the safest ways to make decent money over time. But uh, that will depend on the people that follow us. Charlie? Well, we came a long way from very small beginnings. And the fact that it slows down a little when it becomes monstrous is not my idea of a huge tragedy. I, and I think we will continue to do very well in the future. We had nothing like the energy operation you know, 20 years ago. And it's a powerhouse. We had nothing like Kevin's operation in home building 30 years ago, and it will soon be the biggest. Well, even now it's better than anybody else in the country if you count both types of housing, isn't it? Houses? I think so. And we have a lot going for us, and I'm satisfied. I think it's going to continue reasonably. And it would ruin our life if we did it terribly. <laughs> So that, that's what we wake up thinking about in the morning. But uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in a business where I was going to let down other people. And I think you'd be crazy to do something like that, even if you weren't rich in 88. <laughs> so uh, it, but we are motivated to have something that, that is regarded as, as something different than others. And, and, and we're actually in a world where 
so much money is institutionalized, you know, uh, I, I like the idea of having something that's actually owned by individuals in, in very significant part who basically trust us and, and uh, you know, don't worry about what the next quarter's earnings are going to be. I, I, think it, I think it's different than much of capitalism, and I think it's a, something that Charlie and I feel good about. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how they pertain to your individual situation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.